This Week in Startups is brought to you by Our Crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join Our Crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash twist. Pipe, SaaS companies, this is for you. Pipe helps you unlock your recurring revenue as upfront capital. Sign up in minutes and start trading on Pipe for free for 12 months at pipe.com slash twist. And Drata. Don't let requests for SOC 2 compliance reports slow down your business. Use Drata to stay ahead of the curve. Go to drata.com slash twist for 15% off. All right, really excited about our ne- next guest. His name is Nick Kokonis. He is the founder of Talk, which if you are in the restaurant business, you know you can follow Talk on Twitter. They're T-O-C-K, and uh, you can go to the website Explore Talk. They were acquired by Squarespace uh, for $400 million in March of 2020, just a couple of months ago. And if you don't know about Talk, uh, it's kind of the anti-open uh, table. It's a, a seating and uh, a reservation system built by the co-owner of Alina Next and the Avery. If you don't know these restaurants, you're not from Chicago or you're not in the restaurant business because Alina is Alinea, a Alinea. Yeah. Alinea. Is yeah, a, yeah. I've never been, but is a three Michelin star restaurant and was named the best restaurant uh, in the United States. So welcome to the program, Nick. Thank you very much, Jason. Great to be here. Uh, you and I are recent Twitter buddies. We follow each other on Twitter. I was asking about hot dogs because I don't like hot dogs, but I kind of had a hankering for one. And you put me onto these Chicago ones, the, uh, the Vienna. The, Vienna. Yeah. My God, did you nail it? Vienna hot dogs are fantastic with a proper bun that's poppy seeds poppy seed bun steamed steamed with the relish there is this relish they have that is like a neon green it's not natural it's not nothing natural about this (laughs) i mean it's radioactive and then they have grape mustard but they have a powder they put on it yes and celery salt celery salt that's the powder yeah and oh my lord i ordered this off of their website and i ordered like whatever so probably cost me five bucks a franc or something all in but it was so it's so funny it's so funny to hear you say this because like if you're in chicago that's just like what you had when you were a kid that's just the normal stuff it's your standard dog it's your standard dog standard dog we and, and in brooklyn we had some standard ones like that as well that you would get from like a dirty water or whatever. It was all the same yeah, brand. Yeah. Uh, so you were a derivatives trader. Then you became a restaurateur uh, and then a software entrepreneur, which makes you, I think, a complete renaissance uh, man here on the oh, show. Yeah. Um, I want to start with the, the booking platform that you built. You were in the restaurant business. I understand that Open Table is absolutely uh, hated by restaurateurs second only to yelp in terms of contempt that is probably accurate yes you've done your research that is about yeah. accurate yes and, and you and i both grew up in the restaurant business we're both greeks if people couldn't tell from the last names uh my name is actually with k's as well but you grew up either your dad or your uncle's owned restaurants i uh, if you grew up in chicago man you know greeks greek yeah. cousins there's always greek cousins that have a restaurant somewhere or whatnot i definitely did not really grow up in the business mm. but i was always 
it was like one it's yeah. one kevin bacon away from you know yeah. I yeah. literally grew up in it. You didn't work in the in the restaurants of your uncle's. I never did. Um, yeah. The first day I worked in a restaurant was the day we opened Alinea, which is pretty crazy. And you came to the restaurant business uh, with the knowledge that every single person you talked to said, this is the worst business. Do not go into the restaurant business. And then you made the top restaurant in the country. Tell us how that came about. Yeah, it was. I mean, that's for sure true. And I... I spent over a decade as a derivatives trader, loved it, started investing in the internet as an angel investor in 1996, and had just a diversity of interests. I studied philosophy in college. And when, well, I grew up in a home where my mom, wonderful woman, great mom, terrible cook. And so- Wait, so I, your dad I, was the Greek in the family? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So he cooked. And, he had, like my dad, he had uh, cooking duties. Yeah. But he was busy too. Uh, right. And he also didn't want to offend my mom and all that. So there's a lot of complexity there, but yeah, just suffice it to say, I grew up, um, I grew up a very picky eater mm. and it wasn't until I met my, my wife and, and her family who are ethnically Latvian, who are very Euro and love good wine, good food, trying new things, trying new cuisines, trying ethnic cuisines, all that. And it was genuinely, at 22 years old, it was terrifying for me. And that's the irony of this. It's often the people who I think didn't have exposure to something that become the most passionate about it, whatever mm. it may be, because you're exposed to it at a point where you're like, how did I miss this for the first 22 years yes. of my life? And so I started doing what I always do, which is I started reading books, MFK, you know, Fisher and, and Ruth Reichel and all these kinds of great writers. There was a renaissance of food writing in the early mm. 2000s. And I started Anthony reading all Hardin, that. Kitchen Confidential. Yeah, yeah. Michael Rollman, all those, yeah. all those folks. And we, we traveled a bit and we, we ate and I got more and more passionate about it. And this is all my wife will always laugh because this is all her doing. Um, and, and I get somehow the credit for it, but it really was her doing in that it exposed me to all these wonderful experiences. And then, um, we went one day to lunch at Trio restaurant in Evanston and Grant Ackett's had taken over there. And um, it was just different. It was better than almost anywhere we'd been in the world. Mm. And we'd been very fortunate to eat all over the place. It was 10 minutes from our home. It was in suburban Evanston, which made no sense. And the whenever you find something like that, it's like finding an indie rock band or something yes. like that, right? Where yes. you go, how does the world not know about this? Right. And you want to immediately I, evangelize it. You can't shut up about it. And you correct. want to go deep. Yes. You want to find all the deep tracks, all the live stuff on YouTube, yeah. et cetera. I remember when I was about 14 years old, I found the jam. And yeah. the cool thing then is that like, you know, some guys got all the vinyl and you go, oh my God, they've put up 18 albums and you dig through. And this is kind of what I did with, with Grant and, and with the food. And, you know, I didn't know anything about the business really. But I found myself as I would sit down in a restaurant counting chairs and tables and just doing the basic, very basic math. What is the total potential revenue of this place? How many people can they put through? Anybody could do this. This is, you know, back of the envelope sort of modeling. And eventually, um, you know, after going there for about a year, I, I asked him, you know, what are your goals? What, what do you want to be doing? Hmm. Um, and I had backed some, like yourself, I had backed some small angel startups. And that's often the first question I ask when I do. Um, and is what, what's the goal here? What, where do you what, see it in yeah, 10 what's, years? Not, not, what's, not even what's the goal for the business. What are your goals? Hmm. Like, what do you want with your life? 
um, because this may or may not be a good fit for you, even though you're the one creating it. And, um, you know, he was very, very singularly focused on, I grew up in a diner when I was four years old, I started cooking eggs. I worked for Charlie Trotter for eight weeks. I hated the environment there. He quit. Trotter told him, you'll never amount to anything. He got in a car, drove to the French Laundry. Thomas Keller was his mentor. But then he had this experience where he he just worked for three days at El Bouilly when Fran Adria was there in Spain, in Rosa's Spain, and saw like, oh my God, like I can take these traditional techniques and apply them in ways that are emotionally resonant with people in a totally different way. The rules get cast aside. And so as a young chef, this was very liberating for him. And, and we found him at that moment, like he was 26, 27 years old. He was given control of his first kitchen. And I just said to him one night, you know, what do you want to be doing? And it'll probably not be here, I'm guessing, in the long run. And if you ever want to do something, I'd like to help you build a restaurant for yourself. And he asked me what kind of restaurant I wanted to build. And I said, how should I know? I've never built a restaurant before. <laughs> and that was it. Like literally two weeks later, we we started planning for what became Millennia. And a year to the date of that conversation, we opened, which is cra- genuinely crazy. Everyone along the way, to answer your question in a long, verbose way, everybody I knew said, okay, yeah, you made a bit of money. Don't flush it down the toilet with a restaurant. Did you make the money from the angel investments in that dot-com era? Was um, there any big winner little- in that? Yeah, there was one big winner in that, which was funbrain.com, which was a children's edutainment website, which uh-huh. I invested in at 90, in 1997 when it um, was doing, you know, a couple hundred thousand page views a day. And our options trade, uh, our options software guys that I found and hired, um, hi, Mike Sirks and Paul Hudson. Um, yeah. they, uh, they, um, made this, this game up math baseball for his wife's fourth grade, um, class. And all of a sudden dial-ups, you know, this is dial-up modem days from around the country started going it, going to the site, even though they weren't advertising it outside of her classroom. Wow. So, um, built that up um, and sold it as part of the Family Education Network, which was a $275 million purchase by Pearson PLC. I was the only person that had a say, a vote in the matter that voted against that because I remember some greeting card company sold for $500 million. I remember right that. Before. Yeah, yeah. What was In that March company? Of, it was Excite it was at Home. Something Mountain Greetings. Oh, or something Blue like Mountain. That. And yeah. I was just like, uh, and we had like, we had 8 million students signed up and millions of teachers and all this sort of thing. And and at the, the metrics of the days, as you know, were eyeballs. So I was like, but we have more eyeballs than them. <laughs> hey, everybody. It's time for another R Crowd deal of the week. Right now, you can join R Crowd's investment in. Boatsetter. According to the deal memo, Boatsetter is the largest and only insurance-backed boat rental marketplace that connects owners, renters, and licensed captains. Boatsetter's revenue grew 100% year over year, and more growth could be coming with 12 million private boat owners in the U.S., according to their deal memo. Speaking of growth, do you wish you were in early on some of the best-performing IPOs? of 2019 and 2020, well, R-Crowd investors were. And now you can join them. With R-Crowd, accredited investors can invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early, like I do as an angel investor. R-Crowd investors have benefited from R-Crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat and Lemonade, or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, Oracle, and Uber. So here's your call to action. R-Crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies, 
If you're an accredited investor, you can join our crowd for free. O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D.com slash twist and review the current deals. There is no payment involved until you invest. That's rcrowd.com slash twist to sign up for free. It is so crazy to think about that. There was a website and one of the main behaviors online was sending an electronic it was like Evite, birthday but card. like a primitive version. Yeah. Very primitive. And people were sending birthday cards. So when it was somebody's birthday, you went and you emailed them a digital card. You didn't say there was no social networks at the time. Yes. And correct. It, these things were getting tens of millions of people. What was the valuation like at the time? It was like when 500 million dollars or something. Oh, oh no. When, when I you invested, invested as an angel, what were the valuations? So like back I had then? a very low million? net worth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah less. I, I put, I think I put in a hundred thousand dollars. Um, at a million dollar valuation, maybe, wow. maybe two at most. Amazing. So, so, and then the trading firm did very well. We were doing 4% of daily volume of the Amex at one point. And I developed the first closed in seller network between the Merck and the Amex to RBTFs. ETFs were new and novel in 1998. Um, and so I saw the arbitrage there and, um, you know, I just kind of burnt out. I mean, I did that for 12 years straight, needed a break, merged with a firm in New York. And then I just kind of said like, okay, well, I'm going to take a year off and then go back to trading. I'm good at it. I know what I'm doing, but I don't necessarily want to be doing it in a company of 100 people. I like smaller companies. Um, I really thought that the building linea would be like, I'm going to help this guy build his dream restaurant. I'm an mm. investor in it. I'll get it off the ground. Then I'll hand it over to the experts and I'll walk away. Yeah. And what did you learn? Uh, did the experts know what they were doing in the business or there are no well, there experts? I think in generally, like not just in restaurants, but more generally, like, you know, expertise is another word for tradition in some respects, right? Mm. Um, certainly there are dogma there is expertise at its worst, in the right? Yeah. It, it becomes dogma at some point. Yeah. And so um you know, early on I didn't do much. I did the all the marketing. I love to write. So I did all the marketing, all the written interviews, all of the you know, PR for it. I did all mm. the accounting. I did it all on, you know, I just wrote spreadsheets and macros. I was good at doing that from the trading world. And, you know, I, I looked at POS systems and I was like, well, these are terrible and overpriced. And when the open table salesperson came, it was like watching a, a movie from the 1970s where he literally had the ERB, the electronic reservation book in a suitcase. And I'm not making this up. Wow. And like, and he was like, I could leave this bad boy here for you. So it felt like a 1970s IBM sale. Wow. And I had just come from something where Hilarious. we were building our own software, processing hundreds of thousands of trades a day. It was pre-HFT, high-frequency trading, but it was still like, there's a lot of throughput and a lot of information, basket trading, all of that. And I'm like on like, all I really need to know is like a cell phone number, who these people are, what their preferences are. We need to track all those things. And I didn't at the time recognize that the reason that OpenTable and other reservation systems were like they were was because of the way they monetized it. Mm -hmm. So customers don't recognize that open table charges between $1.25 and 750 for every person who sits at your table. Right. And that is, it doesn't sound like a lot, but if a restaurant has a $20 check average and they charge a dollar, that's a 5% VIG that they've got. Well, that's and then crazy. most of the restaurants, correct me if I'm wrong, are operating at a 10 or 20% margin. So well, 20, most operate less than that. Yeah. So, if, but even if we were generous, ten yeah. percent margin yeah. on a twenty-five dollar cover price is two fifty. If you're giving a dollar twenty-five of it, you just gave half of your margin to Open Table for what reason? What did Open Table do? Well, what they claim 
and and this is what's the craziest part is that they claim that they are the discovery network of choice for oh. diners. So that's you completely know, false. Completely false. In my experience, that's completely false. I do oh, not everyone, discover restaurants on open table at all. Everyone starts at search in social media. Of course. And so and yeah. of course. Yeah, of course. But, but, but here's friends. the thing. But Jason, yeah. if I if I actually said you're the first person who said, of course. I talk to restaurants every week. And they go, but Open Table sends me this report every month. And it says that 92% of the people came through Open Table. And what I say is, Open Table is your front door. You only have one front door. Yeah. It's your digital front door. Of course if you they rip came that, that front way. door off and yeah. throw it away and put it, in, forget talk, put it in any other front door, 92% will come through that. Yeah. Put a phone number or an email. I mean, the, the phone number used to be 100% of reservations that came in. Yes. It's totally ridiculous right. that th their position on that. And so, uh, but they did build a decent product, I think, in terms of seating people, or it became a quickly became a standard. So therefore, it's dogma. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, everybody they, knows they how to very, use it. They yeah. did a skeuomorphic design of an old black book, right? right. And and then a top down of the tables. Yep. And, um, and yeah, there's a lot of muscle memory in the industry on that. And also, yeah. it is very much the case that they had a monopoly for 20 years. Mm. And so consequently, if you're a general manager at a restaurant, and this is not true anymore, but when I started talk, it certainly was. Um, if you go in and say, yeah, open table sucks. Everyone goes, oh yeah, we hate it. And it charges us way too much, but we can't take the, I'm, I'm not going to get fired because I switched off of it. Mm. Like no one got fired for using open table. No, it was the standard. So how could you get, right. I mean, I guess before that it was swirl or something was the POS system. Yeah, I, I mean, back it was like, you know, Open Table started in 98, and actually with a Chicago entrepreneur. And, you know, it was literally started when Danny Myers, like black book got stolen by a disgruntled employee. And he was like, I need the backup of this thing. Wow. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's like, I don't, I bash on them a lot. It, it served me well to do so. They, right. they did a great job for like 15 years. Right. And then they just stopped innovating. Uh, and the innovation you had, if I believe, if I, if I am correct, is that the nature of making a reservation, people don't understand how painful that is for restaurants, because a large percentage of reservations get canceled, people double book themselves, people book for, you tell people there's only four seats available, you only have a four top available, then they show up with five people or six people. And they sometimes people overbook their restaurants, because they think that people are not going to show up, and then people show up, and it's just basically chaos. Correct. It's a chaotic system. It would be as if flights were booked without anybody having any skin in the game. Correct. What would happen to the flight to New York from San Francisco if I just said, yeah, I'm coming with four people and I show up with six or I have a, a reservation for six and I don't show up? Yeah. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, is that it's not just the consumer that's lying often and, and saying like, oh yeah, I'm coming with four people, but they have six or I'll be there at eight and they show up at seven instead because they really wanted seven. It's also the restaurants that know that that behavior is happening about 15% of the time. Mm. And suddenly they're overbooking, like you said. So the reason that you go to a popular restaurant in New York City or San Francisco or Chicago or LA at eight o'clock on a Saturday night, you have a reservation. They say, go wait at the bar for 45 minutes. It's because they lied to you right. knowing that they wouldn't have that table ready by eight o'clock. And they just said, like, but if we if we don't, the restaurant down the street's going to lie to them, and mm. that eight o'clock reservation is going to go to them, even though they won't get seated until eight forty five. So I wanted to solve that. That was the initial thing. Now a whole bunch of other stuff has come since then. But in two thousand, call that in poker leveling. Um, yes, when people are 
Like, okay, I know that you think I'm you weak know. here, yes. so therefore you're going to raise. Yes. So therefore I'm going to shove all in so that you know this is the one out of five times that I actually did have it. And I was like, right. and you're just leveling people. So the literally the major yes. D is leveling. It's the, the Princess the Bride customers. Sicilian. The Literally, Sicilian, I, yes, yes, yes. So <laughs> it, it is very much that, and it leads to really, really bad customer experiences. Yes. It's bad hospitality, and it's inefficient for the restaurant mm. on so many levels. It leads to food waste. Mm. It leads to extra costs. Mm. And um, that was the initial problem that I was trying to solve. And then we've gotten more sophisticated. At first, we just started charging like tickets. Like going to restaurants entertainment. You don't need to eat at a restaurant 100%. ever. So I think it's the biggest entertainment industry in the world that is completely miscategorized as, as non-entertainment. And it's right. because people are so culturally sensitive to it because it's part of our humanity. We have to eat every day as humans. Mm -hmm. And our cultures, we were talking about Greece earlier and our, our ancestors. Like if I say J Japan to you, one of the first things that people think of is Japanese food. That's right. a huge part of the culture. Yeah. So as soon as you start having a conversation about the hospitality industry and any changes you want to make, you go down this rabbit hole of very emotional, very emotional, very guarded about trigger warning. About, yeah, it is. Yes. And so um, there I was wanting to pre charge for a reservation. I mean, I made it into like business week and news week and stuff just saying I'm selling a ticket to a restaurant. Yes. And people lost their shit. <laughs> <laughs> for no good reason. It's like, who cares? Don't come. I don't care. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, it's but just your an experiment that was sold out and you did prefix. So just saying like, listen, you have to buy your tickets. And if you don't show up for the next game, okay, you didn't they show up. That was your choice. Yeah. yeah. Right. The game's over. You burnt your tickets. Yes. And the that end. was my theory and it worked. Um, and then people went, well, but what about a la carte restaurants and casual places? And I said, well, what if we just charge a $5 deposit? Hmm. And what's really crazy, and this is true for you, you've done very well with all of your investments. You put $10 down that you can easily afford to lose, you will change your behavior. 100%. 100%. You now have skin in the game. You have skin in the game. And also, you're like, oh, but I, I, you made a commitment. It's way different than holding a credit card number hmm. and then me calling you afterwards and said, oh, yeah, there's a $75 cancellation fee because you no-showed. Mm. And it's a penalty then, but it's not a penalty if you choose to put the 10 bucks in and make a small down payment. And the notion rate goes to under 3% when you do that. And so we process millions of dollars now every day of deposits. And that was a behavior that took 10 years to get restaurants to start doing. Amazing. And, and what people also don't know, having grown up in the restaurant business myself, is my dad ran his restaurant basically on a, almost a cash basis. He had a bowl of cash that he had in a hidden spot, he would come home from the restaurant with all the cash from the previous night, throw it in the bowl, then he would, you know, hand it out to the different purveyors who he was buying from he'd hand them cash. It was just like he ran it out of his little dish in our yes. you know, living room. My dad room called back that the, the three the three shoebox method. And yeah. the third shoebox put me through college. Exactly. <laughs> right. It basically is like, you know, cash based accounting. So if you're selling tickets, you're getting the money in advance. Now you have the float as the restaurateur, as That's opposed right. to you being chased by your purveyors who gave you 30 days to pay or two weeks to pay. This got to change the whole dynamic in terms of the funding of restaurants. Yeah. And, and one of the things that was frustrating is that when COVID hit, there was really well-intentioned, famous chefs and restaurant owners going on CNN every day saying, but you don't understand, this is a business that we pay for last week's 
food costs with two weeks from now's revenue. Hmm. And I was like, yes, and that's the whole problem. Yes. Like what there are people businesses <laughs> that do that. Like that's a terrible way to do business. Even even if you weren't selling tickets, let's just say you keep operating the way you are, accrue a cash reserve, get rid of your net 90 credit, hmm. call up those purveyors and say, hey, what if I pay you for the next two months ahead? Yeah. And all of a sudden your food costs aren't going to be running 34% anymore. They're going to be running 24%. Right. Like this is these are business principles that I think the reason why I I built talk, the reason why I I um had some success in, in the restaurant business is because I ended up looking at everything as like an expiring option. Right. Like everything was a derivative to me. If there was a seat that was unfilled at the end of a night, I was like, we should have sold that for like half price. We could have right. even sold that under food cost and had revenue that was incremental for food that was going to be wasted. Right. You're, yeah, you're preparing in a fine restaurant like the, the, the meals. I want to welcome Harry Hurst. You know him as the co-CEO and co-founder of the company Pipe. If you've been on Twitter over the past year, you've probably heard me and my besties, a number of which got their beaks wet, talking about all the excitement around Pipe and their fundraising and the product they're bringing to market. I thought I'd have Harry come on and explain it to y'all. Harry, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jason. The people who are buying these contracts, the annualized contracts, are looking to make 10% on their money. And the person who's selling that in advance believes they could put that capital to work that would help grow their revenues more than 10%. Is that a way to look at it? The simple math, if you take, for example, 95 cents on the dollar and you have a $100,000 trade, can I take $95,000 today, invest that into, say, sales and marketing for growth, and generate $5,000 in net new ARR as a result of investing that? If the answer is yes, which I hope it is for any growing company, your cash flow break even on the trade, if not cash flow positive on the trade, and you have the net new ARR, and you know, Bessemer Cloud Index, not sure where it is today, but anywhere between 10 to 20x on that additional 5,000 can be seen as your profit on the trade. So what we're trying to do at Pipe is turn people from having a borrower's mentality where they would traditionally go to, say, a lender and borrow money to a trader's mentality where they think of their recurring revenue streams as an asset. All right. Thanks again, Harry, for coming on the pod and explaining that with Pipe.com, there is no debt, no loans, and most importantly to me as an angel investor, no dilution. If you sign up at Pipe.com slash twist, they'll eliminate all your trading fees for one full year. What a generous offer. Pipe.com slash twist so you can save up to tens of thousands of dollars. Happy piping, everybody. So dynamic pricing was the other innovation. And yes. I know I had invested in reserve, I think, which was part of res got bought by resi, it didn't work out, whatever. Um, sure. And, you know, I've, I've had a lot of people pitch me over the years on dynamic pricing. And there were a bunch of restaurateurs who were like, this is against everything I stand for. How could I charge one customer more than the other? And I was like, there's, this to me doesn't make any sense. Like you have a chef's table in your kitchen that you only allow prefix. Like why yeah, is a Friday a night table the same as a Monday night table? Resi and Reserve, the whole reason I started Talk was because yeah. I watched Resi and Reserve sort of take some early ideas, both from their own admission. Like I talked to both those companies when yeah. they were being formed. And essentially what they wanted to do was surge pricing and mm -hmm. say, hey, like it's impossible to get into Nobu on Saturday night. Yeah. So we're going to charge a $50 deposit from our app and we're going to give the restaurant $25 extra and then you go there and you eat. So it's basically a cover charge. Mm. My whole thing was always like, it's not about surge pricing. It's about reducing the cost on a Tuesday night at 930 when no one's going there. 
Right. Sure, you can charge more on Saturday. And then doing the differentiated experiences. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine if you have three reservation types, free reservations, which are 80% of talk are free. Everything else gets talked about because it's interesting and innovative. But when demand is less than supply, you can't really, you can't press pricing very hard. No. That's just standard stuff. Free reservation, deposit reservations we talked about, prepaid experiences. If you have an inexpensive pizza place or a hot dog place that has a counter where everyone wants to sit to watch the chefs make the pizza, mm-hmm. you can charge a 10 or $20 deposit for that because that's the scarcity. That's what everyone wants. Yeah. While having free reservations everywhere else in your place. That's not what they built. They just built a cover charge mechanism. And then what happened was when people kind of pushed against that cover charge mechanism, they pivoted to just copy open table and, and, and win on price. Yeah. Um, and so then it's a race to the bottom. Oof. And what we were always trying to do is say like, no, 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 we're going to give you incremental revenue to the restaurant. Mm. We're going to cut the no-show rate. We're going to provide a real utility. And the way that we're going to make money is that we're going to process money. Mm. So we're actually taking that the, a little bit of the transaction away from POS systems, putting that up front. We process about a billion dollars a year and it's growing really fast. And that's so you the don't charge them for there. the software. There's no SaaS fee for. There's a SaaS fee, but it's it's nominal. It's between zero and six hundred ninety nine dollars a month. Oh, okay. So that's pretty cheap. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's, it's nominal relative to our competitors. It's it's way less. All right. Let me run by you my two techniques that I used before Talk existed <laughs> or these other platforms. You tell me ethical, not ethical, savvy, and as a restaurateur, <laughs> what you think of these. I'm laughing because I'm guessing them, but I won't guess them ahead. All right. So here's my technique for getting into any restaurant uh, by having my assistant call ahead. I hate to give this out because now everybody's going to start using it. I have my assistant call. I know you're booked up on Saturday night, Nobu, whatever, blah, 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 restaurant. Uh, my uh, CEO is coming to town and he really wants to come. He's a big foodie. Da, da. I was wondering if there was any way if a cancellation happens to come in. And I wrote the script for this. Sure. If... And I should have booked this earlier, and I, I'm going to totally do that yeah, for yeah. next time. Mea culpa. If, full mea couple up front. Full yeah. mea culpa out. Not yeah. trying to, not, do you know who I am, whatever. And by the way, uh, Jason loves Bordeaux's, and I saw yeah, He's going to spend money. You he's going to spend two, money. You have two Bordeaux's I know he would love. So if you could put these two on the side, the 79 and the 84, uh, if you put those on the side for him, and if something opens up, call me back. And then they're like, wait a second, that's $700 in wine. And mm-hmm. then we got another reservation coming and we don't know if they're going to buy wine and what percentage it, of the restaurant business. So is this ethical, savvy, or unethical? Uh, I will say that it's, it's totally fine. Totally and, fine. Yeah. And, and you wouldn't be it, offended it, if you picked up the phone. Oh, I've had that happen a thousand times. That's not that. Really? I, as much as I love you, it's not that novel. It's um, not that the, novel. It's not well, that novel. What's so, the wrong way to but, do it then? Yeah. Well, the the he's really important and famous, and he has this podcast with fifty million people that listen to it. Blah yeah. blah blah blah. Who cares? Because ultimately, ultimately, like you, you might be a pain in the ass. Like you know, yeah. it's like ultimately, that's not what people want. I'll, I'll tell you the the best thing you could possibly do if you're traveling somewhere. This is true, and this works mm. for sure. This is actually what I do, just knowing restaurant. I will literally say like, I'm going to be there anytime for three days, and I really want to mm. try this place. Because I've heard wonderful things about it. Yes. You tell me what time to show up between two and six people. I've never not gotten a reservation worldwide. So brilliant. You basically said, whatever there is, I'll take it. I really, I'm flexible. I know that you, you are not because mm. there's a lot going on. 
And the reason that works is because, and this is something we've digitized and automated now with talk, is that what happens if you cancel is that there's a list of 200 names. Hmm. And if typically what will happen is they'll email or call or text now the first person on that list. And inevitably, that person will be someone who goes, I'm not sure. Oh. I'll check with my spouse oh. and the babysitter. And now what are, you can't just go, you're like, it's bad hospitality. You say like, no, 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 no. I need an answer this second. Right. So, oh my God. Yeah. You're basically, you would be a jerk to them. Like, oh no, no, you're, you're, I just offered you something and I'm pulling it back. That's the yes. same skin in the game thing. It's the opposite of it. So you end up being, it feels very inhospitable. Mm. So if you know, you've got a sure thing, you're going to call that person first. And it really isn't about the money for most restaurants so much as it is. I don't want to call 25 people and I've got an hour. It's annoying. Yeah, you only have so much time before the service starts. And what, what we've done is that ultimately we've democratized it right now because we're post COVID. We have suppressed covers, labor shortages, all these things. We have a wait list literally of a couple thousand names every night. And if someone specifies that they want eight o'clock, there might be 300 people. If we get a late cancellation on that eight o'clock, I have a button on talk that says send to the wait list automatically matches opens up the table on top, and then sends an email to all 200 people. Wow. And first person who snipes, it gets it. That's right. And ultimately, like the amount of time when, when 11 Madison Park was going to go on talk, they had 13 people answering phones every day, telling people no. All day, every day. It was like a phone center. With, I'm not exaggerating at all. That's crazy. It's crazy because you get thousands of calls. Alinea used to get thousands of phone calls. And inevitably, people thought you were lying to them. Like, if right. you called me and said, Nick, it's my anniversary in five weeks. I, you know, can I get into Alinea on a Wednesday night? And I said, I'm really sorry, Jason. We're totally full. Yeah. For sure, you think I'm full of Yeah. Well, like, especially if you've been a guest on the pod. I'm assuming now I can roll in. <laughs> just roll in. Just roll in. Uh, you know, just roll in. It's fine. Yeah, but, you it's know, fun. it's like, so those are the problems that I saw. And rather than just throwing more phone lines at it i was like yeah. well ultimately like why don't we just democratize this yeah and send an email to all 200 people with a click of a button so great. and now you can actually automate that you don't even need to click the button if you if something becomes available it just says hey is there anyone who wants it send them an email send them a text and yeah and if they get to it in time and if they don't it just says hey that's not available let's talk a little bit about what's happened since covid because i think it's super interesting oh my my second technique yeah my daughter is very upset about because she's been thinking about morals and ethics. And she says, this was completely unethical what I did. Um, and she's 11. And she won't stop talking about it. Uh, <laughs> it's just because like, she loves to bring it up. Anytime we have dinner with anybody, she brings up my dad. Can't did believe this. what my dad did. Yeah, Can't believe what my dad. Did. All right. So she wanted to go to high tea at this special high tea place. We go, I didn't anticipate this was going to be like booked out whenever. So I'm like, all right, no problem. I take out a 50. I fold it twice, put it in the palm of my hand. It's my now standard. you palm the maitre d'. That's a thousand I palm the year old Yeah, technique. but it's palming the maitre d is a lost art. So I bring it up and I just say, I'm really sorry. I forgot to make a reservation. If anything opens up with anything you do for me, uh, I'd love to see if it's possible at all. If not, I'd love to come back another time. And I just, you know, put it right on the table there. She takes it. She comes back. She's like, we're all set. Because uh, <laughs> nobody gives 50 bucks or any, nobody tips anymore. The maitre d's, right? So, so again, I, I, not that unique. Um, I will tell you that there was a restaurant and I don't want to say where it is because it'd be, you'd be able to figure it out. And I, I do need to preserve their mm -hmm. anonymity. Very famous restaurant 
went on talk and had multiple rooms, shall we say. And one of them was kind of like the bar area, like a lounge yep. area. No one really wanted to eat there. They all wanted to eat in the fancy dining room. And I already figured it out. Okay, I'm not gonna say. Yeah, <laughs> don't say. I'll beep it out. But you have multiple rooms and a, <laughs> and a fancy well, place up front. I think I know. <laughs> so, so they they went on talk. Yeah. And sure enough, they put the the, the casual room on talk for less huh. expensive and sold it out. And we're also selling at the dining room. But then all of a sudden, their major D's, of which there were three. Oh. very traditional European guys, started telling the ownership, we hate this system. This doesn't work. That doesn't work. This doesn't work. That doesn't work. Yeah. And I was racking my brain going, man, we've not heard this from any of thousands of other restaurants. Something weird is going on here. And what I figured out it was, was that those maitre d's were making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Of course. In cash tips. And we have, we eliminated that. Now we've had the same problem with nightclubs. Some nightclubs have gone on talk, and all of a sudden, the various experiences. You want the DJ booth experience. You want you this know experience. What, you want that. The owner is entitled to that money, not the door person. A thousand percent. Sorry, sorry. And you know what? Yeah. That that is completely unfair. That the the tip of the spear, you know, skims the cream, and then everybody else is working on the experience. As an know. owner, I, so I really don't think it's unethical for you to try, but as an owner, it's my responsibility to let that host or hostess know why that's a bad practice for them to do that mm. and it has more to do with fairness to the other folks around who might be waiting or did, i wonder if they pull the tips too did, did so they should matrix but, but they could also put it in their pocket nobody ever know thousand percent and we've definitely had that happen and uh, and we've caught it and and because it's a it camera go up front you're going to catch it immediately yeah of course yeah. yeah so it should go to the whole staff by should law definitely be pulled yeah. Oh, by law too, so, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so see, and so she thought it was unethical that I did that, and I explained to her. My wife would agree with her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I <laughs> kind I of agree with was, her. Yeah, yeah. I kind of right. do agree with her. It is like, but it's I was also area. like, you know, it's a bit of a marketplace, and some people value the tables yeah. more than others. So I'm just showing and indicating, and that person lives off tips. And but it was, yes. it's such an outrageous tip for a, if the yeah, it's it happens every day though. For sure. It happens all the time. In today's startup landscape, committing to security and compliance is vital for growth. And proof of your company's security posture has never been more important. As you scale, you might start to receive more SOC 2 requests from customers. And that's where Drata comes in. Drata is an advanced automation platform used by some of the world's leading chief information security officers or CISOs. Drata will help you successfully meet requirements, support enterprise deal flow and continually track compliance. Drata also helps customers easily prepare for and clear SOC 2 and other audits. So you can go from zero to audit ready in a matter of weeks. Need more? Take it from Philip Martin, chief security officer at Coinbase. And here's his quote. It became clear to me right away that Drata is an engineering powerhouse. The solution they've developed is well ahead of other market players. Their approach to deep native integrations provides users with the most advanced automation available. So check out Drata's five-star reviews on G2 and see why companies like ClearCo, Smart Recruiter, and The Good Face Project work with Drata for their compliance needs. Twist listeners can get 15% off and waived implementation fees at drata.com slash twist, D-R-A-T-A dot com slash twist. So looking at the restaurant business today, um, one observation I have is that 
when I would go to Korea or Japan, it was pretty standard to have a, a, a red bell on the table. You could press the bell and get service. And it became increasingly standard, you know, maybe even 10, 15 years ago in Japan or whatever, to just pay, um, you know, to order on your phone or to pay with your phone. And the concept of a waiter, even in, you know, more nice establishments went away because of the shortage now. And with these QR codes for the I'm seeing restaurants that were absolutely driven by the waiter experience and being waited on move to a runner. So you order it yourself, you close out yep. your tab as you go using whatever it is. Toast, I think is one popular one. I don't know if I mean, you talk provide has that. Talk has, has that it built well. into. Yeah. And, and so, there's, so there's, what are your thoughts on that? And is that a yeah, trend and, that stays with us? And is it better for customers and restaurants or worse? So, well, the better or worst part is tr tricky. It's an experience thing, right? So I think great service will never go fully out of style, right? I mean, there's, mm -hmm. there's an art to that and it's a wonderful hospitality experience to have it. Uh, weirdly, and this is a theory of mine, but I'm pretty confident in it. The reason why in Europe and Asia that happened more quickly is because credit card rates there are so many basis points less. They're less than half. Mm. Of, of, you know, so, and also card present rates in the US are kind of like two, 2.1% for Visa, MasterCard, 3.1% for Amex. Card not present rates are 2.9%. Table tra side transaction, even if you use this, they don't accept biometric data for it. So, so it's so card not present, which means you have to pay a higher amount. 0.8% because they didn't run a piece of plastic. And so consequently- what a scam. If you want a billion dollar business, convince the credit card companies that that is a dying thing. Mm. And here's how hard it is and how entrenched it is. Can you pay with Apple Pay walking out of a restaurant right now? Like Tim Cook once said, Apple Pay is not a success until I can use it walking out the door of my restaurant. Mm. But the reason that Apple has not even been able to force function that is because all the POS systems are are kind of already you know embedded with like literally wiring in these systems, and if you don't swipe the credit card, it's not a card present transaction. Hmm. And so you get so, paid, yeah, yeah, and so that's crazy, and that's something that I'm working on hmm. because if you can unlock that, if I can charge, heck, I should be able to charge less, right? Right. So so if I could charge two percent or I could do a direct ACH payment directly from the the from you, Jason. I can actually give you a one percent discount if you just pay with the talk app, and it goes right into the restaurant. Amazing checking. Yeah, we just bypass them all together. I, so I've used I, I've used the Apple Pay once or twice in restaurants. I was so delighted by it because you just look at your thing, you double yeah. click. It's so easy. It's phenomenal. I I am a big fan of. We're we're integrating talk with Apple Pay in two weeks. Amazing. Um, and we uh. We, we have a partnership with Chase. So these are all things that you have to do to start forcing the industry mm. to go, hey, maybe that is a card present transaction. The great thing I find about the runners and the and this automation, if we consider it that or business process automation is, you know, there's that moment where your kid wants another order of calamari, and you can't flag somebody and it's busy. And you can just order it and save 10 minutes of trying to flag somebody down. Oh, think about how much time Oof. as a business is spent with that universal symbol where you check in the air 
and you're trying to get the person. And then you literally have to take out a piece of plastic, put it into a little envelope thing. They Oof. go run it. They swipe it. They bring it back. You then write in pen. It's about the only writing I do these days yeah. with a pen. Write with a pen. Sign it, which is meaningless. Mm. And then that's where your fraud comes in, both from the consumer, which is a huge problem, and in restaurants. I mean, huge problem in restaurants. It's, it's got to be 10, 20% of a service time is just dealing with the checks, right? Yeah. And then, th- and then there are maybe 2% of the servers that, inst- that, that unfortunately type in that, that tip wrong. Cause that tip's not digital. So they just write, if you write $5, they punch in six. Are you going to remember that? No. So there's ways of software in the industry to track people who do that incorrectly. Mm. But you know, all that should go away. Like you should obviously get your bill on your phone at this point. When you order in advance in one of those QR systems ahead of time and you're, you know, the runner brings food, do they see the tip immediately or do they see after you leave the restaurant? I'm it depends on the system. Got it. I want them to see my tip immediately. I'm a big tipper. Yeah. Well, I'm a huge tipper. what should really happen is tipping should go away. But that's a whole other really? thing. Why? It what is because that's Danny Meyer's position, right? Or he included it the is, service. But unfortunately, unfortunately, in New York, so Colicchio, Danny Meyer, a bunch of folks tried it. In New York, there was a single class action lawyer who went around finding uh, Fair Labor Standards Act, you know, um, the FLSA, finding little tiny infractions, and then doing class action suits because that, and that's a felony. So they always settle. They're they're locked shut. I've read them all, and it's one guy who changed case law in New York City. Wow. And unfortunately, the press always goes to Danny in New York City and all the famous restaurant owners there and says, hey, hospitality included, you have to, if it's a $10 hamburger, it's now a $12 hamburger. Well, we eliminated tipping in 2011 at all of our restaurants. We have been, we have 401k with 4% matching. We have healthcare. We have Family Medical Leave Act. And we have, a, we treat servers like the professionals that they are. But according to the FLSA, I can't do that. I have to charge them hourly. I have to pay them hourly. And I have to pay them hourly plus overtime because they are not capable of entering a contract for work in the way that you and That's I would. so ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And we're talking about the highest end servers in the world yes. at the number one restaurant in the country. Yes. And these people are making significant salaries. Yeah, they- $150,000 a year for some of them. So wow. at, the end of the, at the end of the day, like I still have to pay them hourly and overtime. And it makes no sense. And what accrues from that is that benefits and whatnot. So if I can charge a 20% service charge mm-hmm. in most states, in Illinois and California and you know, most states other than New York City, I can say it's a mandatory service charge, charge for service, no different than going in and getting a haircut. That's a charge for service. It is taxable. So the city likes it. Mm-hmm. And then it is ordinary income. Now I have to pay FICA on that and I don't get the tipped wage credit. So I can't, mm-hmm. char- I can't pay them $2 an hour and just rely on tips and then that money flows through my business. But here's the thing. What's fascinating during COVID is that all of the restaurant owners who wanted to say, yeah, yeah, we should treat the industry better. We should do all that. As soon as it said $15 minimum wage with no tip wage credit, they said, no, 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 we can't do that. We didn't mean that. Right. And, and I'm going like, actually, it's not that hard. But unfortunately, the press is located in New York. Yep. And they always went to the New York restaurants. And it is impossible to do it there. Danny Meyer did not fail at it because he's bad at what he does. He failed at it because the system's rigged against him. And, and also it's the framing. Sounds. It's the framing of framing's everything. Yeah. They're, they're framing it as your this rich restaurateur is, 
you know, not letting his staff get tips when in fact, what they're saying is, uh, maybe the back of the house should get paid a little better. And there should be some fairness and everybody should work as a team. And yeah, the they should know what they're going to make. Look, the disparity between the front of house and back of house in some restaurants is four to five X. And people don't realize that. The waiters because are making three or 400 a shift in those top restaurants? Yeah, easily. 500? Yeah, easily. Yeah. 500 a shift. And then what is the, the sous chef making? I mean, the sous, well, the sous chef is salaried because he's an yeah. exempt employee. But you might yeah. have a cook making $18 an hour or something like Got that. Got it. Plus overtime. So the front of the house is working so, a 12-hour shift making 40 bucks an hour. The back is making half or less. Yeah, for sure. That easily. happens all the time. And and what what's highly frustrating about this for me is that basically what you said. Like I'm like, no, 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 we've gotten rid of tipping. And then even people within the industry, even advocates for the servers, you know, themselves or right. unions or whatever, are like, oh, you're being greedy. And I'm like, no, it actually cost me extra five hundred grand a year. Like yeah. out of my own pocket, literally. Right. To do all this and to offer all these benefits, but it's better for longevity of the restaurant because we have a better business and a better hospitality. So that was an investment we made. That is literally precisely the investment that they're asking for. Also, then you don't have to turn over the staff. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the more you have to turn over staff, that, that's got to be the worst I mean, part that's of every restaurant tour. Right? And it's what happens is the top 20 to 30% stay for 10 years. Mm. Almost no matter what you do, the mm. rest kind of churn because there's a lot of transients Mm. In, in the industry. There's a lot of people who come to Chicago, go, oh, you know what, I'm going to work here for a year or two, and then I'm going to move to San Francisco. That's kind of standard. How has delivery changed the business? So, so going forward, you think we have a lot of, just to wrap up the runners and the QR codes and the automated? I think that's going to stay stick that around. stays, right? I mean, who but wants to be, go backwards? Yeah. It will stay and improve. Hmm. What needs to be improved in it, you think? I mean, aside well, from the fee structure we talked about. Yeah, the fee structure. But I, I think that... Um, you have to rethink the system of that. Like there still has to be someone that kind of checks in on you and stuff. I think that like people look at it as an all or none. Like if they ordered on their phone, I'm going to drop the food. I'm, there's not going to be any hospitality at all. It's turned into a glorified fast food at that point. Mm. And I think that there are ways of, of making it more elevated, even though this mechanism for your initial order and payment is digital. Yeah. I went to an Indian restaurant uh, by me recently and they had, a very Asian style uh, button system. One was for water, one was for the check, one was just a call for service. And I was like, wow, they really thought this through. Like they actually put water. Have you ever seen that? A, a four no, button system? I've never seen it, but I'm kind of, I'm laughing. Like you can't see me, but I'm, I'm like, I'm like the yeah. simplicity of that is so brilliant, right? Like what else is there? Water, wait, or check? Like that's right, 95%. Yes. You've, you've hit almost all the edge cases. Yeah. yeah. Where's the bathroom is the only other one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that stays, which means you need less servers, more runners, restaurants mo work more efficiently, it's easier to get to profitability, I guess, because you've taken out 10% of the cost, I'm guessing Probably, something in that range. Yeah. I don't really know. Now, what about delivery? Because it does seem like that's another thing where now everybody who said they would never be a delivery restaurant, you know, some number of them are like, yeah, we figured it out. <laughs> we, we had no choice but to figure it out. Um, a lot of my favorite restaurants in the Bay Area would never do delivery. And then all of a sudden, these high end restaurants are like, Oh, you want ramen? Yeah, it doesn't deliver. You have to come get it. And we don't even do pickup. And now they're just like, here's our at home ramen meal kit. <laughs> meal kit. Yeah. The meal kit. So we've, we've entered the trough of that, right? So it, okay. it spiked hugely. Um, we served about 280,000 people during COVID for Alinea alone, 1250 people a night, every night. Um, delivery? We, 
well, pickup because pickup. It, it picks up better and oh. delivery, a lot of issues. With what did it cost and what was it? Was it uh, like, how between did you 30, package it? 35 and $75. Um, you know, you're looking for, you know, everything was reheated at home. Oh. So, um, you know, just a, everything from Alinea pot pies to mm. we did for our 15th anniversary, we did a seven course where you replicated some of the dishes at home. Mm. And what was really cool is that we were able to do that for $75, but we kept the quality silly high. And, um, so it sold out every single day. Like we went from two days after, after the shutdown orders, we were open. We did 750, um, covers that night for carry out. And I was oh, like a drill sergeant in there. I was like, we don't own a restaurant anymore take all these tables out of here. We're going to have assembly lines and we're going to put people six feet apart. And I worked with an epidemiologist. Like we, we consulted with doctors and we, we basically wanted to bring a bit of joy to people during that very scary start mm. of the pandemic. And I have been an advocate saying, why would we ever get rid of that? Now, the answer of why would you get rid of it is if no one buys it, you're not going to keep it. Right. And right, right now, we still sell them every week, but we sell way, way, way fewer. And it's a pain to keep it up when it's not a meaningful percentage of your revenue right now. Got it. However, so for, yeah. However, I think that um, a great example, not to speak of our own stuff, but like Gavin Kaysen in, in Minneapolis owns Spoon and Stable. And he started um, doing GK at home, which are Zoom calls where you get a kit anywhere in the country, you hop onto Zoom, he teaches you how to cook it. He is wow. killing it with that. And it is as vibrant as opening another restaurant. And at first he was just doing the meal kits. Then he added the video. Then he's got the lessons. Then he's got the, they're on file. So you can order the one from a month ago. And while you can't participate, you can see the recording of it. So you learn to cook. Those sorts of things like there are tons of restaurants that are nationally recognized brands and chefs and owners who are nationally recognized brands whose food you can't get. And just shoving a bunch of bagels in a box and shipping them across the country is not an innovative way to do that. You no. know, it's novel. Hey, I, you know, I'm going to send you some bagels for my favorite bagel. Yeah, place. the gold sure. belly model of like, hey, right. here's your- I didn't want to use the name, but yeah. Yeah, whatever. And, right. No, I, you know, so- You're being- I don't, know who's, a, I don't know who's a sponsor, right? You know, <laughs> well, sponsors I, mean, I like gold belly. I order right. gold belly sometimes, right. and sometimes right. I order right. direct from folks. And no, they're, they're killing it. They're doing really well. But, but like, no, I, I like put, your idea of like that. People love, chefs or celebrities, and having that, you know- that business becomes super accretive yeah. and to Gavin, the core brand. Gavin's done a genius job of doing it. And and he's reopened his restaurants now and they're busier than ever. And he's still doing it. Like, why would you ever get rid of that? So I think that, I think it's short-sighted of, of restaurants to go like, oh, we did that during COVID. Now we're getting rid of it. Hmm. So I think it's just, you have to figure out, well, during normal times, what do people want when they want something at home? And what days do they want it? Like I, I bought another 3000 turkeys for Thanksgiving this year, because for the most part, People aren't going to go to Alinea on Thanksgiving, but they will order the Alinea meal kit with heritage turkeys and all the sides and stuffings and pre-made and all that. They'll cook uh, the turkey What's that going to go for? What's that going to go for? I, th I, yeah. I think it was a couple hundred bucks last year yeah. per person. That's we did almost a million dollars. Do you actually cook the turkey and so you get a cooked no, turkey? No, that's the only thing we don't do. You, 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 the customer will cook the turkey. Got it. We will show you how to cook the turkey, but you get all the sides and the gravy and all that stuff nice. where it's just heat up. We sold a million dollars of, of revenue in a single day. Wow. Yeah. That is so why wouldn't we do that again? And even if we do yeah. it half as much, that's like, that's no, way better than no open, you know, being open. We gave our whole staff the week off. That they get to go home. When I grew up in the restaurant business, it was like Mother's Day, 
Easter, Thanksgiving, That's you're exactly working. That's right. New Year's Eve. Yeah, New Year's right. Eve. Like we, I never had any of those holidays. I was like, right. who goes out on those civilian holidays? That's the worst yep. night to go out. You're going to get banged out for well, four times the other the thing money. That's, you know, kind of the same idea tangentially is like there's this huge nightclub company that's a, that's a, a a client of talk, and during COVID they couldn't do nightclubs, and mm -hmm. they, they just put big TVs in front of all of like you know the the private VIP areas, mm -hmm. and they sold them for NFL game day and stuff like that oh, during the day. Nice. Sweet. With food and, and beverages and all that, they're like, why would we ever get rid of that? That is like an incredible innovation that you would absolutely keep. What, right. What's going on with staffing and hiring? Because we hear in the press, unemployment is keeping people from coming back to these jobs because they're getting the supplement. Is, is that directionally true? And then is it also true that people are maybe saying like, I'm rethinking my life. Maybe I don't want to work as much. Uh, yeah, both, there, both political parties. Yeah, both yeah. political parties are wrong. Okay, which is interesting. Um, so it's a huge problem um, to reopen um, businesses, you know, especially in the hospitality industry. But you know, you're talking about hotels to airlines, yep. you know, all that. Um, and it's a problem for for our businesses as well. What's interesting is that when you hear the 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 far right politicians say, "Well, like we have to cut off all all of the benefits." Well, that's certainly partially true for some people, but as you said, there are people who made a transition and and went to other, you know, livelihoods and found out, hey, you know what? Even though I've been a waiter for ten years, I can be with my family more at night, and I'm doing this other job, and I'm, you know, being very successful at it. So that that um, all of a sudden you broke apart an industry. People were resilient as they are. Yep. In a in a in our capitalist society, they found other jobs. And now it's going to take time to replenish those, those, those people because they actually did the right thing. The converse is also true. When I heard President Biden say, look, like no one's staying home for an extra $600 a week or whatever, because that only adds up to whatever. I had, I literally had a chef say who was making $65,000 a year plus benefits. So total comp 82,000 or whatever. Send me a picture of his government check and a bong from Breckenridge and said, I'll ski till September. See you then. It's literally the case. So both things not can be ski, true at the same like time. Not hike, whatever. But yeah. yeah so yeah. both no, no. things are true. You both know, things I mean, he are was true. Just, he, was, he went there during COVID to ski and just stayed. And, you know. So the, the fact of the matter is, is that both things are true. Some yes. people in the industry are willing to make less. If they can make $45,000 a year not working or $80,000 a year working, they are not necessarily rational and going, oh, yes, I should plan for my future and make $80,000. But then there was a whole bunch of resilient people who just went and found other jobs. Right. They may have pulled out that project they were waiting on. They had the 600 or 800 bucks or whatever they had. I, I can bucks name 10 people off the top of my head who, who repurposed themselves with our help, by the way, yes. who found jobs in, in software sales and stuff like that in, in for the industry. We hired people from the industry for talk. Half of our mm -hmm. salespeople were former restaurant employees. And so um, both things are true and there's no cognitive dissonance in that. Like yeah. it's, it's just really frustrating to watch. And it's going to take, you know, not to watch it happen. Um, it's frustrating as a business owner, but it is what it is. Um, but also like the other thing is that like they're saying, oh, well, if you increased wages, you can offer a $500 signing bonus at $20 an hour and you're still not getting applicants. Yeah. I was talking to a famous restaurateur who had a place in San Francisco and he was saying before covid they had to offer 35 dollars an hour for a dishwasher in san francisco 
I believe uh, plus overtime. And so now you're in the one and a half bonus, you know, now you're talking about whatever $55 an hour for the last two hours of a shift. And he's like, I, I don't know how to make this work. Can I charge $38 for pasta? Like, right. I guess I have to in San Francisco, like inflation's a, a real thing. And inflation's a real thing. And it's not like labor inflation is very real for across everyone I'm hiring, whether that be on the software side or the restaurant side. The, 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 that's where you're seeing the primary inflation. And then that's got to so. trickle down because if the person who's got the trucking company that's bringing you the produce has to pay 10 bucks an hour more for their driver. A thousand percent. It's it's, in, it seems inevitable. And also, like, you know, we don't want to get too technized, but like money supply looks right. like a Bitcoin chart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's like at some point, like I literally am on a, a, a I'm friends um, with um, Richard Thaler, Nobel Prize winning economist. And when all the money supply stuff started coming, he put me on a chain with a whole bunch of really prominent economists. And I sort of said, like, what do you guys make of this? And they're the best economists in the world. They're like, I don't know. No one's ever done it before. Yeah, we'll find out. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you're, you're guess, they're asking me, they're like, well, you used to be a trader. How would you trade that? And I'm like, you know how to trade it. Like, it's got to devalue things. It has to. And if it doesn't. Well, I mean, the thing I'm seeing is, I don't know if you're seeing this, but the most affluent people I know have become so much more wealthy during the pandemic because they had so many equities. And if they had the right equities, you know, some companies didn't sure, go crazy, but if you had the right ones and Amazon quadrupled or something, now somebody who wasn't even thinking about buying a third or fourth home or a plane or whatever is buying a third or fourth home. And yes. like, because I can, and they don't sell the original two. Uh, so then you look at homes and the appreciation of high-end homes has been nothing short of insane. Bananas. But like bananas, bananas. Like people, yeah. are, I have and people cold offering if me they for my do house. Wanna, people, people, yeah, I was going to say people think that rich people don't take out mortgages, but if you're earning 25% on your money and you can borrow at 3%, you do that. Yeah. So like, yeah. So there's a whole bunch of factors playing into it all. And, you know, it's going to normalize, but you can't shut off the light switch like we all did for COVID. And then expect to gear everything back up as fast as you shut it off. Turning things off is much easier than it is turning them on. Yeah, restarting. If you left a car, if you've left your Mustang, 1969 Mustang in the garage for four years, and then you want to start it up again, you might need to That's get it right. tuned up. Or if you left your bike, you know, tied to a lamppost for two years, yeah. it's rusted. It's, it's going to need new tires and a new chain. So what do you think about vaccines and forcing employees to have them? This has got to be the most well, controversial you're topic. Hot button. Yeah, you're giving well, me. Well, I mean, hot I just button. you don't have to talk uh, about yeah. your restaurant. No, 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 no. The I industry. Will. I don't mind. I'm just yeah. laughing because I mean, most Google today said it. you're not coming back to Google offices unless you're vaccinated. I'll tell you, you have what we. Stay I'll, home. Tell you, I'll tell you what we did. Did um, you see that Google I, story, by the way? Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. I did. And I mean, that's, and that is a they planted a flag there. What we did, what we did at, at the restaurants is, as we reopened, we said, "Hey, you don't have to do this." You don't, we're not going to force you to get vaccinated. You don't have to show us your vaccine card. If you do, however, and you're 10 days past your second dose and you show it to us, you don't need to wear your, your PPE anymore. Okay. There's a great carrot. Right. So, so you can take off the mask and the gloves and we got everybody who was vaccinated a little pin that's a delineate group vaccinated with a check mark so that mm. the customers would know that that person's fully vaccinated and it's been checked. Well, the 
small minority of people in the restaurant who who were not vaccinated still had to wear gloves, do hourly hand washings, and wear the mask the whole time. And take a COVID uh, test, probably. Yeah. Yeah, we had, you know, so at the at the end of the day, you can still work there if you're not vaccinated, but it's a bit of a scarlet letter. Everybody in the whole place is going to know that you're the person. Now, I will say that there was one case, and precisely one, where the person had a medical reason to not be vaccinated, and that is valid. There are certain, you yeah. know, edge cases, and we didn't want to disadvantage that person or make them feel bad about it in any way or whatever. So, we just basically said like, hey, we also need people in accounting. <laughs> so okay. yeah you know like we will retrain you to do other other work where you're in an office that's very compassionate i mean right so but uh, what about customers then eventually uh, are well, we starting to think about that because if your choice is delta variant is going bonkers and you could allow you could keep the restaurant open and everybody has to show a vaccine card which when i went to madison square garden to watch my knicks in the playoffs this year you i had to show my it. vaccine card yeah. to be in the lower and i was thrilled that was like the coming out party for the pandemic. And yes. Yeah. And people were just loved personally, it. No mask. What do you personally? Think? I am pro science, pro vaccine. I have Shocking. no idea how to. Yeah. I have no idea how to reach those people. It's a failure of our educational system and our priorities. Yeah. And yes, you should have compassion to the people who don't understand it. But at some point, there has to be the conversation about rights and privileges. Hmm. like Explain. it is your right to choose not to do it it's right. america if you don't want to put something in your body you don't have to but then there's a whole lot of privileges that are going to go away yeah and just like if you get hammered and drive a car you're privileged to drive a car goes away these are not hmm. novel concepts right. but for whatever reason the, the talk of rights and privileges devolves in our society now to you know it is not only my right to do that but it's my right to shop at walmart hmm. or go to my restaurant or whatever and at the end of the day, that's a privilege. Hmm. The public, the public discourse, the public, the public gathering is a privilege hmm. in our society. And it, it, we've lost that. And it's, it's, it's something that we, yeah, I mean, this is Hobbes, right? I was a philosophy guy. You know, life in a, a state of nature is nasty, shortish, and brute, right? Yeah. Brutish and short, I mean. And, you know, you have a social contract. And the concept of a social contract is not being messaged over the last six years in America in a very terrible way. And it's very sad. Super sad. Do you think restaurants will become show your vaccine card? It's got to be something we, people are discussing now, right? We, 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 we ask people if they're vaccinated or not on our follow-up questions for all the people who make reservations at my restaurants. Mm. The vast majority um, answer in the affirmative, even if they uploaded that, which then you get into HIPAA things about storage and all that. How do I really know they're vaccinated? Right. They could, I know they that could they, be, you have a fake card. So yes. yeah. it's really without some, which won't happen, I don't think, but without some national passport, like Macron yeah. was talking about, um, it's going to be very, very difficult to, you know, to standardize that. Right. I mean, it was interesting in New York. They just said, show your vaccine card and. I guess if you had a penalty on the other side of having a fake one or distributing fake ones, I think that would yeah. be enough that if you got a 10K penalty for having a fake vaccine I card. Would, I would hope so. But part of me feels like there'd be a whole underground in just doing that. Yeah. Um, all right. As we wrap here, and it's been great to have you on the pod. Uh, great. Just great guest. Um, talk to me about the uh, signature dessert you guys created, the painted table that is often now 
uh, copied. I think that it's copied go- and mocked, and it's on. It was on the front page of Reddit last week, where um, some people thought it was food porn, and some people is there's a there's a subreddit called like just put it on a plate or something like that. <laughs> um, I was watching a Picasso documentary from mm. the 20s or 30s where they had mounted a camera behind some plexiglass and watched him watched him paint. Mm. And I highly recommend no matter what you do in life like watch this. It is bananas interesting how he creates layers of of uh of paint and stories under the final image that you don't even see. And he feels like they'll still get conveyed. Mm. And at the time, we were talking with Martin Kastner from Crucial Detail, who's a designer that we work with a lot at Alinea. And we were saying, how do we make people feel childlike? Like one of the great things about a great hospitality experience or any experience is that it's new. And the older you get, the harder it is to have a new experience. And, and that's the, that is the childlike innocence that we all lose as we get older. So we decided we wanted to make people feel childlike. And the first thought that I had was I was once in a museum where everything was scaled to what it'd be like if you were five years old. So the chairs were huge, the table was huge, the cutlery oh, was huge, the plates were huge. And you'd sit down and you'd go, holy shit, I do remember that. I remember when my feet dangled off the chair and the fork was too big for my hand and all that. Yeah. So I was like, we're going to make a table plate. <laughs> and it's going to be like the size of the table and it's going to be a plate. And then we're going to take the chefs. They're all going to come out and we're going to let one of the customers plate the same food. So all the mise en place will be there. And we'll be like, yeah, just take the spoon and do this. And then there's what one that's looking like, there's <laughs> will look like shit because they're yeah. not, they don't have the paint stroke of Picasso, of the artist, yeah. of the chef. And at the same time, it'll be a new experience because everyone loves to paint when they're a kid. Yep. And you'll have this giant thing. So that was the start of the conversation. And yeah. we made up a mock-up of this giant plate. And what I realized very, very quickly is you cannot carry a giant plate into a dining room without whacking people in the head. No. There's nowhere to store it. You can't clean it. Yeah, but like we always, we don't let that stop us. Like we're going to yeah, go no, like- no okay, bad ideas the, in the ideation like, phase. Yeah. Right. We're going we're gonna to try this out on some people. And Grant told me like, I don't like going in the dining room. I don't want to go in the dining room. I don't want people paying like this is stupid, all that sort of thing. Yeah. So it got shelved for a couple of months. And then I would go like, well, maybe we could just plate on a normal plate and they could see the process. Because- I would stand in the kitchen and in order mm. to get Grant's attention in the first couple of years of Alinea, I would just get some tweezers and, you know, some kitchen gloves and I would do a plate. So I'd learned how to do it. Mm. And the poor person that got mine didn't look quite as good as the people that got his or they fixed it or whatever. And I said, you know, people want to see that. That is the magic behind the door of the kitchen. The just plating like of cut. the dish is just such a wonderful thing to watch. And especially when it's, elegantly done and beautifully done. Yeah. And that's the thing, that's part of what you're paying for is that process. So anyway, Martin Kastner finally fa- went like, well, you're, we're thinking about this all wrong. We need to drape the table with silicone because it's hygienic, it's clean, it's it's like, it's a tablecloth. We don't have tablecloths there. And then we'll do that. So we used to do it for like a couple months. We did it for one table in each dining room per night. And, you know, the chefs would come out and do this. And the customers, even the customers not at that table, would would just lose themselves. Right. And then they all said, well, why didn't I get that? Now, they <laughs> thought that the other people were VIPs or they paid us off or something like yes. that. But the reality was we chose people at random. And eventually, we just went like, well, we just have to do it for every table. Yeah. And so, that's no the doubt. story of where that came from. And the wild thing for me was that when, when 
we did Chef's Table for Netflix. And I happened to be in LA and I was driving down the highway and I saw the billboard for, for Chef's Table for Netflix. Ah. And it was that thing. Amazing. And I can't tell you what a wild, it's just like putting anything into the world, be it software yeah. or anything else. But seeing it on a billboard and seeing people copy it and mock it, and it's, it yeah. was on, you know, it was, it's been in, uh, you know, a couple of movies where they made fun of it and all that. Like, I love all that. Yeah. Like, what could be better than be parodied on SNL? You pierce you know? the zeitgeist. Like, you figure it yeah. out in the simulation how to capture everybody's attention with something for right. 15 minutes. And, and it's and all we did is want make people feel like kids again. And we stole from Picasso, which is a good guy to steal from. Amazing. Amazing. When you look back on derivatives, software creation, restaurant creation, and you think about the core of entrepreneurship and the creative process, what, what do you think is at the core for entrepreneurs? Obviously, that's the audience of this podcast. What have you learned? What, what do you think the fundamental tenets for you are as an entrepreneur? You, you have to get to a point where you wake up every day and you can't imagine not doing that thing. Mm. Right. So like there was a point when I, when I would go eat at, with Grant, you know, at Trio where I would wake up at like four in the morning going, I, I got to do, I got to build a restaurant with this guy. Cause there's like mm. things I can contribute and he's, he's the best in the world and no one knows it yet. Like I have to make that happen, not just for him, but for, for other people to see it. And there's a lot of other ideas that I have that like percolate around for a while, but they're not that like burning thing. Like I was working on a, a talk for four and a half years before I said, ah, God damn it. Now I need to go hire people and actually start doing this the right way. Um, because I knew what a commitment that was because I had done that four or five times in my life already. Um, that is the key thing because as you know, call it a pivot, call it whatever you will. Some hit the fan at some point hmm. and the entrepreneurs that do well go, Oh, the world just changed or my business just changed or whatever. That's fine. The core of what we have is still there. The value proposition is still there. We just need to change this thing. But you have to be willing to wake up every day and be passionate about it. And that's yeah, a cliche, I mean, passion but. is uh, such a cliche. I, I think what you're talking about, you know, if we were to use a more accurate word, is an unhealthy obsession. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, and also, a, which, a notion which is noble, which is amazing. If you have something you're unhealthily obsessed with, well, that's so much jet fuel for you to actually accomplish things. And as you're saying, it, there's going to be times when you need to pivot or fight through really rough seas. And if you're unnaturally obsessed with getting to this new world or seeing this thing manifest yeah. in the world, then that's going to carry there, you through. There is a corollary too. And the corollary is, do you think it's an inevitable outcome of the world, mm. even if you don't do it? Because then you've got some tailwinds. So like talk, the prepayment of experiences for restaurants would have happened at some point, even if mm. I didn't do it. Grant would have had an awesome restaurant and, and it wouldn't have been a linea. It may not have had a table plate, but it would have been awesome even if I didn't do it. And to mm -hmm. me, that's the other thing. If I'm backing a company, I just saw an amazing, amazingly cool company in the music space last week. And as soon as they started showing this to me, I went, Oh, that's the inevitable outcome of, of that part of the industry. Mm -hmm. And Did I was like, I'm about to. Oh, <laughs> I'll talk to you about Let's take this off. Right yeah, right, right, right. And by yeah, the way, and I, I think I know what restaurant had the three folks. I'm going to say it right I, now. It's not going to be part of the official recording, but okay, we can beep it? it out. That's fine. I'll tell you is if you're it, right or not. It's a two-word 
name for the restaurant. And it's based in New York. Is the first letter D? No, it's that's not. That's a D. It's a D. Damn it! I thought it was Gramercy Tavern. It's not Gramercy Tavern because they do have a casual up front. And they so do Gramercy have- Tavern is the test case that I built that I show to everyone in the industry. Even though Gramercy Tavern's not on talk, Gramercy Tavern's not on talk because Danny Meyer invested in Resi. Right, he did. That's right. Ah, uh, but you're right. Gramercy Tavern is. This they is my other. Ex- yeah, they have five experiences there. They have I, wait, the tavern. Have the front of the room, yes, the tavern, which right. is casual. Yes. Then you have the restaurant and the prefix. That's three. Correct. I don't know the other two. Well, the, there's two prefixes. There's the vegetarian ah, and right. the regular. And then there's pri- private event room. Right. The private event room is crazy expensive. It's like three five, grand. Yeah. Five experiences in one restaurant. No way to book them until you get there. With this the exception was, of private events. This is. Uh, let me tell you what a foodie I was. Um, Gramercy Tavern used to be my office because I would go there between one thirty and five thirty, yeah. and I would sit at the table in the front with the two um, right on the window with the two mm-hmm. couches, and I would sit there and just order food as we go. And I would do six or seven back to back meetings. And I during the doc on there, I just meet CEOs, whatever. I yep. sit there and it'd be me, my editor, uh, my managing editor, and the sales executive. And we would just have people rotating in. They would seat us. I would give them a two hundred dollar tip they had the great iced tea but before that when i was dating uh and i had no money i would take girls to the city opera if i had a date because i could get city opera tickets for 10 20 bucks each sure and then i would tell them listen i really want to go see la bohem uh and let's uh but i have to work so let's meet at lincoln center and then afterwards we'll get dessert or something because i couldn't afford to take them out for dinner sure yeah and i would go straight to gramercy tavern and I knew the uh, bartender, and they had a souffle that they only did in the kitchen, but they also did cookies and some other good stuff, sure. like ganache, whatever in the front. But I knew the guy, and I'd say, "Hey, can we get two cappuccinos and the uh, any way we could get the souffle from yeah, the back?" Yeah. He's like, "Because uh, they had one that was like a harvesty kind of flavor, like a ginger yeah. bread, whatever." Man, that fucking restaurant is so good, so good, it's so, so consistent. Good. Michael Anthony is still great. Michael Anthony is a great chef. Mm. One of the three best dishes I've ever had is the cold smoked trout there. Yeah. Great dish. Great dish. Great absolutely. dish. And then 11 Madison is going all vegetarian? Has that gone. Has gone. Yeah. Does that make tense. any sense to you? Is that going to work? Mm. That's this is uh, one of the ones where I will, I will, this is, I'm going to censor myself on this one. <laughs> this is where you, like, I'll talk about COVID all you want. Yeah. But I, I, that was one I, I was I, like, I, I'm interested to see because how many seats do they have and how many vegetarians are there who want to spend a hundred, what is it, 150 bucks for the prefix? Oh, way more than Madison? that. Yeah, it's way more than that. Yeah. 300? It's three times that. It's 300 bucks, 250, 300 bucks. It's like per se level. It's sold out instantly yeah. um, when they oh, reopened. But I, I will say that we, I, I will not speak to them, but when we did for next, next, every three, four months, we changed cuisines entirely from Paris 1906 to whatever. And we did a vegan, um, menu hmm. where we did not rely on the usual like tofu and proteins and all that we did really really like the vegetable stocks were like hmm. browned and cooked down with mushrooms and all that so you got really thick hmm. unctuous sauces and whatnot and i am an omnivore and i love meat and um it was a great menu if you cater to three percent of the population you're gonna have a hard time selling out 
my friend started eats at David Freeberg for the online podcast. And I was like, bro, queen of quinoa. I named him queen of quinoa. After he started eats on the program. It was the joke. We're playing poker. And he, he basically started. Itza. <laughs> it was like this automated semi-automated. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah. And then he went on and, and he bought the largest quinoa farms in Canada or whatever. And he's like all in on quinoa. And I'm like, um, any chance you can put a piece of salmon on there? He's like, no, it's all gotta be vegetarian. I was like, bagogi. Yeah. Rib? Something. Yeah. Just give me something like you, you're limiting, you know, if four people in the office go out to as a to business. Eat. So Daniel has, has articulated why he's doing this. Mm. And I don't question that. Like, great. Sustainability, the world, all that, global, all, all, valid. That good stuff. Yeah, all valid, all valid stuff. All and good if, stuff. And he's yes. taking a risk and that's his right to do that. Right. It seems to me. So this is he's not the first person. To do this. Trotter got rid of a whole bunch of protein. I know Charlie back Trotter had a famous. Uh, uh, yeah. Alain Passard did the same thing. It lasted about a year and a half. Like he had, mm. he was most famous for his breast chicken. People traveled from all over the world to eat this chicken. He got rid of it and did a vegetable menu for about a year and a half. Mm. Um, he's now serving the breast chicken. So like I, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, you know, New York is a very busy place, and I think most people eat there once, and it's a great experience. I'm sure. So, yeah. um, that said, I would not want to do that. What about the mock meats? You would think that any of those are ready for prime time in restaurants? There is. Uh, so, I invested, um, full disclosure, in a company called Meaty, M-E-A-T-I, which is mycelium-based. Ah. Uh, where it has mushrooms, single ingredients. Right? Yeah. Mushrooms. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. The, it's, the, it's like sort of the root uh, yeah. precursor of mushroom. They figured out how to essentially brew hundreds of cows worth of protein every 24 hours Wow! at medium scale in a substrate that has a texture that's more meat-like than the fake meats, mm. like, you know, impossible foods and all that. Um, I don't find those very compelling as, as a meat eater, um, but I read about what they were doing. First of all, those things have like 30 ingredients in them. Like they're not, there's, argu it's arguable how sustainable they are and, and all of that and how much processing there is. This is literally like one ingredient mm. and the protein level of it is through the roof. So they're scaling that up. Um, we are working with them to work on improved flavor. It soaks up flavor just like tofu does. Uh, it's a amazing. very, very basic substrate. But the, um, so I do think that there's validity to that. I think lab grown meat is an inevitability at some point. We're getting close. I mean, it feels like yeah. we're. Because really, it's a it's a question of cost. You know, if it's if it costs more to make a steak out of whatever soybeans or whatever you're using, mycelium, whatever you yeah, use, yeah. then it costs to buy, you know, you know Miyazaki beef or sure, Australian sure. wagyu. Like, who's going for that? But when it starts to become, mm -hmm. you know, more price competitive, well, and also and also, it, I think that there's an error that people make where they try to basically make the thing look like steak. Mm. Right. Like, I don't need it to look like steak. Just tell me it's a high protein XYZ and I'm totally happy. Now, there are some lab, I had some lab grown salmon that blew my socks off. Wow. In a million years, I would, you know, it, it, on sushi on, and as nigiri. Never oh, you had it as nigiri sushi and you couldn't tell. Couldn't tell. Huh. It was perfect. And that's not at scale yet. You know, like people call us because, of yeah. the restaurants and whatnot. And Maybe that was wild it. type. It might've been wild type. It was, was not wild type. It's another company, huh, but, yeah. um, there, but, it, but it, I'll tell you. Finless like, foods gonna, was the other one. Finless foods and wild type were the two. I didn't invest in either. 
but I've looked at them deeply. Uh, probably a mistake because I also had the ability to get in on Impossible and Beyond yeah, I blew and, that too. I, blew I, it I too. didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you I, blow I those investments? I tasted your, them. You take that, which problem. is a bad reason, I guess. Right, but like I was like, ah, are people really going to buy this? So like, Meaty was the first one where I went, oh, like I would eat this. I would not just eat it. I would seek it out. You might enjoy it. Yeah. See, that's the thing yeah. for me is uh, the, bl the blind spot I had with these was I was like, you're telling me people are going to spend three times as much on an impossible burger so that you're going to pay $20 for an impossible burger when I can get, you know, like yeah. a, a DB bistro beef, burger yeah. right. with yes. short rib in the center. Like, no, like it's, I was no completely sense. wrong. Yeah, I was completely, completely wrong. wrong. It yeah, turns out people wrong. are willing to pay twice as much at Burger King or wherever. They're that's choosing right. to get these things for something that's better. I mean, that's which now that you think about it, people will pay twice as much for a Tesla or a Prius or an EV sure. than for an equivalent car because they want to save the environment. Well, they did. Now they've come yes. down. Probably yes. not as pronounced. What three dishes are you most obsessed with in terms of food? Or have you become the most obsessed with in your Oh, it's you really go back simple and stuff. Forth. Yeah, yeah, it's really simple stuff. Go um, back and forth. I, I love making like an Italian sausage bolognese and oh. at home. And, and that's nice. what I like, even though it's summer, I, I, my wife is, is out hiking this week. She's hiking the Tahoe Rim Trail. Oh, nice. And so when she's, when she's gone, I get to make that midsummer and, oh, uh, nice ball it is. and yeah. yeah. And so even though it's midsummer, I, I, I love that. Um, I absolutely either obsessed. make or eat, by the way, make or eat both. So, yeah, both, yeah. both, both. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I like to make and eat that. Like I love, 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 mm. um, you know, I love Italian food. So like, I'm going to keep, you know, like any sort of thing like that is great. Um, there is, um, a single bowl pressure cooked Korean spice pulled pork. That is like mm. one of the greatest recipes I've ever had in my life. Wow. And I've known my, my wife makes it. It's absolutely fantastic. Is she Korean or? No. Oh, no, okay. my no, wife's Korean. That's what I was asking. Was, I was like, she was culturally She was culturally appropriating that one, but it, oh, it's, okay. it's it's it's. I think she got it from a Korean friend, so that that counts. And um, it's we're gonna put the recipe in the show notes, folks. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, All I the will, producers are going crazy right now in the yeah, 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 room. Will, What's will, the recipe? Will, What's the recipe? When she gets back from, uh, she's oh, very organized about her recipes. Another investment of mine, but it's I invested in this not you know for environmental reasons partly, but partly because the product was the best. Maui Nui venison. Um, it Maui is Maui Nui. So in Maui in Hawaii, correct. There is a venison farm. They're making deer, or they're hunting. Deer? They're not. Yeah, they're hunting the deer. So the problem was is that back oh. in like the 1940s, 50s, 50s, I guess it would be the J some Japanese um, immigrants brought in um, these tiny little deer, like they have in Japan, and they are decimating the ranches and countryside. There is oh, estimated Maui. to be. 40 to 50,000 of these deer running on Maui. That's crazy. On Maui. And if you see, just go to Maui Nui Venison. I'm Google looking it up, at it right now. Video. It's unbelievable. And um, Jake and his wife are spent, Jacob spent 10 years getting the USDA to certify a wild product. So you talk wow. about a guy who's obsessed with something who wakes up in this the morning. This is an unnatural goes, obsession here, for sure. Right, right. And he, his wife is um, Hawaiian. And he got there and went, wow, like these ranchers are, are trying to get rid of these deer because they're decimating their crops. Mm. And yet they're the, they're eating. I mean, think about where they live. They live in a yeah. lush 
wild environment. So Beautiful. they're eating this wonderful natural product. So um, I, I, I heard of them through Tim Ferriss. Tim said, what do you think of this product? Sent me some. And I immediately took the rib rack, which is really small. It's the size of like a lamb rib rack. Yeah. And I sent it to Alinea. Like I ate one, cooked it, and I went, this is one of the best proteins I've ever had in my life. Huh. Immediately sent it to Alinea. The chefs there were basically like, how do we buy this? Hmm. And they weren't Perfect. even selling to restaurants at that point. So um, it's sustainability for the island. Um, they are now paying the ranchers to harvest these deer, which the ranchers were just slaughtering them and leaving them there. And mm. so now the ranchers don't want to get rid of the deer because the deer, it's just, he's created this really wonderful, beautiful ecosystem, economic incentive to help the environment there and also to be a high protein, beautiful product. Right now, for me, it's Peking duck. I've been going crazy on Peking duck. Have you ever had the, the Peking duck at Decoy in New York? I have uh, not. Red Farm. Yeah, really great. Amazing. Red Farm, I've been to. Yeah. yeah. So, Red Farm, beneath Red Farm, He's doing like Jewish Asian fusion on some yeah, of those dishes. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've ever had the. Um, he's got one of the dim sum items. He's got is like mm -hmm. uh, corned beef or something inside of <laughs> yeah. a dumpling. Yeah, 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 right. Um, but he does a limited number of ducks. I mean, he should be using your system for reservations. Yes, um, he should. Incredible. And then Mr. Jews here in San Francisco uh, has Peking duck. That's pretty amazing. Um, I mean, the other one I've been getting into. I don't know if you've ever had ramen that are dipping ramen like. There's a company called Taishoken out of Japan, and they just opened mm -hmm. in San Mateo the past year, but it's dipping ramen. So they call it sukiman, where you get yep. like this soup that they make over two or three days. That's like a yes, really thick. I, I, I you know You dip it. these buckwheats in there, and then you slurp them yes. up. Like David Chang and I think Anthony Bourdain went to the one in Japan, waited for hours. And yeah, my made... wife speaks Japanese and lived there. She's Latvian. Oh. Um, and so we've. We've been fortunate to tour Japan and eat all yeah. those sorts of things. It's, it's, it's so amazing, amazing stuff. Oh, yeah. Amazing. All right. Listen, uh, we've got a lot of friends in common. This has been a great hour and a half. Yeah. Wonderful. I can't wait to meet you in person one of these days and have dinner somewhere. Please uh, do. Are you, you're in yeah. the Bay Area. Yeah. I'm in the Bay Area now. Might move to Austin, maybe Miami. I don't know, but I'm in the Bay Area for <laughs> now. If you ever roll <laughs> through the Bay, I will take you to this dipping noodle I am, place. I am two and a half hours from there right now. I'm in, I'm in, uh, Lake Tahoe area. Oh, fantastic. Well, if you roll through, let me know. Uh, I will. I will yeah. do so. Enjoy. Ta not too much going on in Tahoe food wise. I'm not allowed a to say rough. that. We have some wonderful clients here. You do? Oh, yeah. No, I'm yes. just saying like on the high end. <laughs> yes. No, I, yeah, for sure. That's for yeah. sure true. But right. we're working on it. Well, uh, Thank you, we'll Jason. see you all next time. Bye-bye.